Thank you, Jason. Well, we come to the end of our Pleasing God series for the summer. This is going to be the last sermon of 12 or 13 sermons, I think. As we've considered this theme, we're going to look at verses 8 through 25 of Hebrews 13. This is the second half of the message I preached last week on 10 practices of a God-pleasing church. So uh, just quickly, let's review where we've been uh, last week, and then we'll get into the five this week. Um, I was struck when Jason was reading by verse 22 of Hebrews 13, where the writer says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. The whole letter to Hebrews has been a strong exhortation. It's had a, it has a lot of warnings in it. It has a lot of pleading in it. It has a lot of strong words in it. And I, I just want to acknowledge that this sermon and last week's sermon is an, is, it has an, a, a tone of exhortation to it, a sort of wake-up call, a sort of, hey, let's listen to this and pay attention to what God is saying to us. And it's, it, I love the way he says it. He just says, bear with that. Because what's our tendency when we hear a strong word of exhortation? It's to buck it or to excuse it. So that applies to other people. It doesn't necessarily apply to me. But he says, bear with it. It's going to sound hard at first. But let it soak for a while because it'll be good in the end. So that's what my prayer for us this morning is that you would bear with my word of exhortation to us in these 10 practices from Hebrews 13. So where, where we were last week, and I'll be very quick on these. We looked at five practices from Hebrews 13, 1 through verse 7. They were, number one, a God-pleasing church loves each other. Number two, a God-pleasing church cares for the needy. Number three, a God-pleasing church honors marriage. Number four, a God-pleasing church trusts God, not money. And a God-pleasing church obeys and honors leaders. Now, I just want to tack on an addendum to two of those that I neglected to mention last week. I want to talk just briefly about needy in verses 2 and 3, the caring for the needy piece. I wanted to make an application to that that I neglected to do so last week. And also regarding number 5 on obeying and honoring our leaders. So first of all, let me say a brief word about honoring the needy. Now, I said last week that we should care for the needy in verses 2 and 3 of Hebrews chapter 13. And this means that they, we have to have a willingness to enter in to the sufferings of others. But, but I failed to mention some, some application in that regard, which I think is helpful to know. Have you, you know, when you hear words like that about, about you know, caring for the needy, the immediate question is, what needs has God called me to meet? I mean, we, you can't meet all the needs in the world. You can't even meet all the needs in your own life. So, so what needs does God call us to meet? And I, and I wanted to make this point last week, and I'll just go ahead and tack it on here. But I think the biblical principle of moral proximity applies. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that you are responsible for the problems and the challenges that are closest to you. Beginning in your family, and then in your church, and then in your local community, and the further you go out from that, the less immediate responsibility you bear. Now, you say, well, wait, Pastor Mark. If that were true all the time, we'd never send missionaries cross-culturally. Well, that's absolutely true, right? But, but that's a high, high priority 
that demands a whole church response. I'm talking about individual responsibility here. I'm not talking about the responsibility of the church to make disciples of all nations. And I just want to point you to a couple of passages. 1 Timothy 5.8 says that anyone who does not look after the members of his own household is worse than an unbeliever. Or Galatians 6, verse 10, as, 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 as you have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially of the household of faith. Or Jeremiah 29, verse 7, where Jeremiah says that we are to take responsibility for doing good to our local places in which we live. So this principle of moral proximity is all throughout the New Testament. We should invest most of our energy into caring for the needy in our families, in our workplaces, in our local churches, and in our local communities. Yes, we should be educated on what's going on all around the world and what's going on in our nation. But biblically, your comparative influence will be ordinarily quite small compared to your ability to influence things in your local sphere. Charles Spurgeon says, Many servants of God are made to feel their weakness by an oppressive sense of responsibility. Brethren... I speak to you as wise men. Do not take an exaggerated view of what the Lord expects of you. He will not blame you for not doing that which is beyond your mental power or physical strength. You are required to be faithful, but you are not bound to be successful. You are to teach, but you cannot compel people to learn. You are to make things plain, but you cannot give carnal men an understanding of spiritual things. You are not the Father, nor the Savior, nor the Comforter of the church. We cannot take the responsibility of the universe upon our shoulders. While vexing ourselves with fancied obligations, we may overlook our real burdens. I could sit down and meditate until I felt the responsibility of the whole south of London on my back. And this would render me unable to look after my own church. Now, I do not want you to get away from feeling a due measure of responsibility. But then, you're not God. And you do not stand in God's place. You're not the rulers of providence, and you've not been elected sole managers of the covenant of grace. Therefore, do not act as if you were. (laughs) Spurgeon has a way of putting our responsibilities in perspective, helpfully. Secondly, I just want to make a comment about obeying and honoring leaders. I came across this this week as I was reading in my devotions. I was actually in Hebrews 13, and I read an article on this very subject, and I want to share that quote with you said, Christians are called to make their pastor's ministry joyful. While we must not condone abuse or tolerate false teaching, as one writer said, at the very least, it entails obedience and submission that's not offered grudgingly. How can our leaders do their work with joy if they know that we're going to resist every move they make and complain as they follow their direction? In fact, we should be going out of our way to make their jobs easier. We do not do this when we are never happy. We do this when we are never happy with them, gripe about him choices, every decision about church programs, or every error in communication. We should endeavor to give our Christian leaders the benefit of the doubt, to not assume ill motives, and to trust that they are attempting to make decisions that are grounded in wisdom and prayer. Unless we're given clear evidence of a problem, we should never assume the worst about our leaders. Joyful leaders are of great advantage to us. I thought that was a good word and a helpful reminder for all of us as we live under authority to think the best of one another as we would want others to think of us as well. So with that review, uh, in the rearview mirror, let's dive into the next five and conclude this 10 practices sermon. This is part two. Number six, 
A God-pleasing church is centered on Jesus. A God-pleasing church is centered on Jesus. Would you look again at verse 8 and 9 of Hebrews 13? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who, have, who, who are devoted to them. Now, notice the contrast between verses 8 and verse 9. You have the contrast between the changeless and incomparable Jesus in verse 8, contrasted with the changing doctrine, which we are called to not be carried away by. He calls it various and strange doctrine. In other words, what the writer is telling us is don't get sidetracked in your devotion in a way that undermines Jesus as the most important reality in your life. Now, he wouldn't warn us of this if it wasn't a temptation to do it, right? In his first letter to the young pastor Timothy, Paul, in fact, warned against wolves in the church who have what he called a craving for controversy and quarrels and who feed on constant friction, 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 8. Paul wrote to Titus to avoid, in Titus 3, verses 9 to 11, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. Those are strong words. It should go without saying that craving controversy... And feeding on friction does not make people of faith a light to the culture. Rather, it shows us to be a product of the culture. I think this is especially important in our polarized days in which we're living. A few years ago, uh, Slate Magazine came out with a piece that identified 2014 as the year of outrage. The year of outrage. Uh, One New York Times contributor said that so many letters to the editor and blog comments contain, quote, a tone of thrilled vindication from what he says, people who have been vigilantly on the lookout for something to be offended by. Some part of us loves feeling, one, right, and two, wronged. One former U.S. president recently said that one remaining bigotry in modern society is that we don't want to be around anybody who disagrees with us. Emma Green of The Atlantic wrote an article called Taming Christian Outrage, highlighting how some Christians have become part of the outrage madness online and in their personal lives. She wrote that it's the common thread among outraged Christians that they are not interested in winning hearts but rather interested in asserting their own rights, their own privileges, and their own comforts in a post-Christian culture. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't have to tell you that our culture is running on the poison of outrage. It sells because controversy creates cash. You do know that, right? In our cultural moment, we are literally forming communities around whatever we mutually hate. As a result, tribes form, echo chambers emerge, social media feeds grow, podcasts rant, and churches split. 
Being for something is so out of style. Now it's all about what you're against. Want to build a following? Get people to pay attention to you? Just get mad. Get mad. But brothers and sisters, that's not Christ's way. That's not the way Christ behaves. And I fear that we can be tempted to be infected more than we can even realize. I agree with Brett McCracken in a recent article he wrote called, Are Christians Losing the Battle to, Are Churches Losing the Battle to Form Christians? In it, he writes of being so disheartened at the troubling tendency of Christians to be more shaped by our online life than by church life and its formational practices. He writes, The church is increasingly just one voice among many speaking into a Christian's life. A church's worship habits may occupy two hours of a Christian's week, but podcasts, radio shows, cable news, social media, streaming entertainment, and other forms of media account for upwards of 90 hours of the week. We can't compete. We can't compete. We are finite creatures, brothers and sisters who only have a certain amount of bandwidth for intake and output. Let's use the vast majority of it on the bread of life and the mission of God. These ought to receive our best energies. And I feel like they get the dregs. It's sad when we binge our mornings, soak our souls, and fret away our evenings on the concerns of fallen earthly kingdoms. You are being discipled by it. The world needs more from you than what it generates from itself. We can do better. And for the record, I'm not talking about whether or not we should engage politically. We should. Political engagement is good, and love of God and neighbor demands it. So I'm, what I'm arguing for is a greater, lesser, not either or. Passivity can be as equally unholy as activism can be worldly. But we could use a ten times more otherworldly orientation and not be the worse for it as a church. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you, as the writer of the Hebrews would, to center your life on Christ. You say, my life is centered on Christ. Is that reflected in your calendar? Is that reflected in the time of your week? If I know Siri pops up on my phone and tells me how much screen time I've been on every week. What if we got a Christ every week? A Christ update. Here's how much time you spent engaging with Christ, thinking about Christ, working for Christ, meditating on Christ, worshiping Christ. It'd be sad, wouldn't it? I mean, wouldn't it be, we'll be like, oh my goodness, I'm shocked by the screen time, aren't you? Shocked. I'm like, how in the world? What? No way. Siri, don't lie, though. <laughs> She's telling you the truth. I just plead with you to take inventory of the formative power of what you consume. Because that's what the writer to the Hebrews is doing. It is so prone. We, we, when we're not centered on Christ, we can begin to get distracted by other things. He's, in, this, in this context, they're getting led away by diverse and strange teachings. He doesn't necessarily define what those are. They have something to do with food, probably something to do with Jew, the Jewish uh, food laws and things like that that they were getting hung up on as a part, to, be a part of, to be a Christian. You've got to do this kind of stuff too. 
But he says, look, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by food. In other words, when we are forsaking centering our lives on Christ and instead binging it on other things, we are weakening ourselves. We, we, we should strengthen our hearts by grace. Don't you want a strong grace heart? I do. I do. So I plead with you to see how, a, how toxic it can be to have a heavy diet of media and a low intake of Scripture. I plead with you to hear the name of Jesus more than you hear anybody else's name. I don't care how important they are. I plead with you to think more about Jesus than you think about anybody else. I plead with you to spend more time with Jesus than you do with anybody else. Now, I know that's, that's hard to do. It's, we got busy lives. We got a lot. But we could be served so well. Because what will happen if we do that is we will be the kind of people who are otherworldly and make no sense to our culture. I plead with you not to undermine your gospel witness by caring about the same things the world cares about in the same way they care about them. I'm not saying we don't care about them. I'm just saying unbelievers and other people that we live with should get a feeling like things are important to us, but Christ is most important. We should give that flavor off everywhere we go. So I plead with you to, to not drown the roar of angels by rejoicing more in what's happening in culture than a sinner repenting and coming into the kingdom. I plead with you to share the truth of the gospel more than you share your opinion about anything else. I plead with you to care more about eternity than you care about our country. And we should care about our country. We're citizens here. But I plead with you to care about obeying every command of Christ more. That's what I'm calling for, is centered on Christ. The gravity of this problem can't be overstated because if the church of Jesus Christ becomes more shaped by the temporal concerns of our contemporary cultural moment than by the eternal kingdom concerns of Scripture, we've surrendered our last shred of relevance. And we've lost our prophetic edge. When the church fixes its gaze on headlines... Instead of the pages of Scripture, we lose. When union with the culture or a cause matters more for Christians than our union with Christ, people aren't going to be interested in our Christ. He obviously doesn't hold our interest very well. But when the church fixes its gaze on Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, God's revealed word, unchanging for all time, and an eternal perspective beyond the fleeting stimuli that fills our feeds, we can speak truth prophetically and maybe get heard. (laughs) When our faith shapes our politics and our sexual ethics and our speech and everything else, rather than those things shaping our faith, then the world might take seriously the gospel we preach. And that's what we want, because we want to save souls above and beyond everything else. That's the first point. Number six, let's be centered on Jesus Christ. Number seven, a God-pleasing church suffers with Christ. A God-pleasing church suffers with Christ, verses 10 through 14. Now, verses 10 through 14 addresses the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, his death on the cross. The writer here pictures the cross as an altar, an offering 
by which Christ was offered. He fulfilled the day of atonement, according to verse 11. That's in Leviticus 16, where there was one day out of the year where there were the, 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 the bulls and the goats were slaughtered as an atonement for sin. And, and Christ redeems, or redeemed that image and applies it to his own work on the cross, sanctifying us not with the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood when he suffered outside the gates, just as the, just as the lamb that was sent out into the wilderness was responsible for doing on the day of atonement. So the writer picks up this whole image, this whole Old Testament image of the Day of Atonement and says the fulfillment of that is in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Now we know that, but notice the application that he makes to our lives as a result of it. He doesn't say, now therefore trust in this Christ. Well, that's true, but he knows their brothers and sisters in Christ. He doesn't have to tell them to try. He's already just told them to remember Jesus and to, and to be reminded to not be led astray from him. But notice the application, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, verse 13, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that's to come. In other words, he says, join him. Join him on the hill of Calvary. Get on the cross with him. Go die to yourself as he died for you. You follow in his footsteps. You bear your cross as he told us to do. Take up your cross and follow me. For those who save their lives will lose it, but those who lose their lives will save it. He says, how can we do that? Because we recognize here is not our lasting city. This isn't our lasting city. There will come an end one day to the United States of America. It will be done. Okay? But heaven's not going anywhere. The new heavens and the earth, new earth aren't going anywhere. And that's our eternal home and that's our lasting city. Now, do we think that way? Do we have that orientation? Do we think this is the normal Christian life he's describing here? He's describing a, a suffering Christ who suffered as a sacrificial lamb outside the camp, being burned to death, incinerated under God's wrath on a hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And now he says, you go get on that hill too. You go outside the camp. Just as the scapegoat was sent out into the wilderness to die, you go out in the wilderness and die. Go out there. Now, not literally. Don't move to the deserts of Egypt and starve to death. That's not what we're saying. But spiritually and really, this is the way we think about our lives. I am going to Christ. And that will mean suffering with him. Now, Charles Spurgeon, let's get Mr. Spurgeon back up to the pulpit and have him preach to us again. He says, do you think that you're going to be carried into heaven on a feather bed? Have you got a notion in your head that the road to paradise is all lawn, the grass smoothly mown, still waters and green pastures ever and anon to cheer you? You have just got to clear your heads of that deceitful fancy. The way to heaven is uphill and downhill, uphill with difficulty and downhill with trials. Through the very mouth of dragons is the path to paradise. Now, do we believe that? I, I think we do, but I think at a deeper level, we don't. Because we expect it differently, don't we? Johnny Erickson Tata said, when people ask about healing, remember, she's the quadriplegic who uh, suffered a um, debilitating neck injury falling off a horse when she was younger. Um, 
or was it a pool? It was swimming, wasn't it? Diving into a pool. Sorry, that was a different person. So, um, yes, let's get Johnny's story straight. Well known. She dove into a shallow uh, bed of water and was paralyzed. But nonetheless, she's been in a wheelchair her whole life, quadriplegic, unable to move. She can move slightly some of her arms. But she says, when people ask about healing, I'm less interested in the physical and more interested in healing my heart. (laughs) Oh, Johnny, you speak so prophetically to all of us. Pray that I get rid of my lazy attitude about God's word and prayer, of brute pride, set me free from self-centeredness. Those are more important because Jesus thought they were more important, end quote. Is that the way we think about suffering? The problem isn't my physical suffering. The problem is my dead heart that needs to be awakened to God. Reflecting on her wheelchair, Johnny said, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner, then in my new perfect glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior and I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. Then the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin and all of earth will join in the party. (laughs) Praise the Lord for Johnny. You know, the older I get, the more attuned I trust I'm becoming to Scripture, the more convinced I am that the real action in God's kingdom, the real thing that moves the needle in the kingdom of God, is not so much on the big platform or in the halls of power, but it's the quiet, daily, ordinary faithfulness of God's children. Most of your quiet times will not be mountaintop experiences where you come down with a glowing face with needing to put a veil so your husband and wife can look at you. All right? They will feel like you're just pushing through, wiping the crust out of your eyes as you hold a cup of coffee, yawning through your muddled prayers for God to help you and hallow his name. Most of your times with your spouse will not be soaring acts of emotional and physical and spiritual ecstasy like is presented in a romantic comedy, but it will be the faithful hugs, the words of encouragement, the acts of service over a long haul as two two sinners who said, I do, commit to love each other all their days. Most of your times with your family are not vacations where everyone has fun and gets along and engages in hour-long times of family devotion with your two-year-old answering 133 catechism questions correctly. Most of it will be the daily commitments around the dinner table to talk, read scripture, and pray while one child cries and one is alerting you that you've not adequately supplied their need for a cold beverage while another is falling out of their chair onto the head for the third time in two weeks. Most of your ministry in the church will not be soaring times of worship marked by grateful praise from the gathered masses expressing their appreciation for your love and labors on behalf of Jesus It will be changing diapers, keeping commitments, returning phone calls, providing meals, asking questions, offering prayer, sending thank you notes, saying hello, hosting showers, moving chairs, making disciples, building friendships, and a thousand other insignificant and absolutely glorious deeds. See, brothers and sisters, this passage teaches us something about true greatness, doesn't it? When you look at Jesus, the Son of God, dying on the place of the skull between two thieves. Is that your portrait of greatness? 
True greatness will never come to those who seek to be great. It will come to those who make themselves of no reputation and give their unseen daily lives and their everyday energies and their ordinary faith to serving others amid their own regular sufferings and unrequited desires. See, the life of Jesus challenges our attempt something great approaches to life. By choice and by design, Jesus was born outdoors to two economically strapped teenagers who would soon become refugees. He lacked a formal education. He worked a blue-collar job. He never got married or had children. And he spent most of his adult life homeless, at least without a mortgage. He had places to live. According to Isaiah, his physical appearance was so unimpressive that there was nothing identifiably attractive about him. Most people misunderstood and rejected him, and he was eventually abandoned by his closest friends. He died as a common criminal on a Roman trash heap, having been regarded as an enemy of both the synagogue and the state. As one writer says, Scripture reveals that real and total freedom is only found through downward mobility. The divine way is indeed the downward way. Jesus moved from power to powerlessness, from greatness to smallness, from success to failure, from strength to weakness, from glory to ignominy. The whole life of Jesus of Nazareth resisted upward mobility. Jesus was not esteemed by men. When we are esteemed by men, it should be a red flag and we should look for ways to move out of the spotlight. This is the way the kingdom of Christ operates. Number eight, a God-pleasing church sacrifices. A God-pleasing church sacrifices. Look at verse 15 and 16. Through him then, that is through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledges his name. So you see the word sacrifice there, sacrifice of praise. But sacrifice is also in verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So we're going to talk about two different sacrifices that a God-pleasing church does. First, the sacrifice of praise. And second, the sacrifice of sharing. Vertical worship, horizontal love. Let's talk about them one at a time. First of all, the sacrifice of praise, verse 15. While worship, according to Hebrews 13, 15, is not limited to church, he says we're to offer up continually the sacrifice of praise. We can't do that in church, right? We can't just offer continual praise like we live here and that's all we do. So it's obviously expanding worship to include life, not just the church. But... In this passage, it's certainly including the priority of gathering together to sacrifice praise. He says, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. Meaning a corporate expression of praise to God. The fruit of lips, plural, that acknowledge his name. So he already has had a concern for this church that he's writing to, or this group of Hebrew Christians that perhaps were part of several churches. But he has a concern that they are somehow forsaking gathering together, or at least being tempted to. You remember Hebrews chapter 10, right? Verses 24 and 25, where he says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, 
as is the habit of some. So he's calling upon them to not forsake the gathering of themselves together. Now, why is it called a sacrifice? Why is it a sacrifice of praise? Well, obviously, it's pointing back to the Old Testament sacrifices, the thank offering and things like that, that would have been offered on the altar um, as an expression of praise. But here, he's talking about the fruit of lips, singing, acknowledging his name in corporate praise. But it's called a sacrifice because it is. Worship is an offering that requires devotion. It requires sacrifice. Worship requires sacrifice. So are you? Do you think of worship that way? I mean, when I wake up on Sundays, I'm not always thrilled to go to church. Believe it or not. I love you all. I want to be here. But there's in my flesh enough remaining sin and corruption to, 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 to have to fight and to say, I, I know I need to be there. I'm going to be there. I have to preach. <laughs> I remember this old, uh, this old um, comic strip um, where there was, a, there was a, a wife talking to a husband, and the husband was buried in the bed, and uh, he was saying, you know, you got to get up. You got to get up. And, uh, she's, and he's laying there, I don't want to get up. And she says, you got to get up. You got to go. You know, people are expecting you. And he's like, no, I don't want to go. He's like, they, all they do is hate me there. I don't want to go. And he goes, but you've got to go. You've got to go. You're the pastor. And so pastors can feel that way sometimes. Thankfully, you all make it easy to get out of bed, but they're not the case everywhere. But David Clarkson, who was a Puritan, preached a sermon from Psalm 87.2. Um, the verse is, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than the dwellings of Jacob. And uh, the title of that sermon is, is well known, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's well known by any pastor um, who appeals to his congregation to come to church. It's called Public Worship to be Preferred Before Private. And in this sermon, he basically makes the argument on the basis of Psalm 87.2 that God prefers you go to church than have a quiet time. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't have quiet times, obviously, and read the Bible on our own. And, but uh, he makes the argument that public worship is more glorifying to God than private worship is. Now, let me give you just a few uh, reasons he gives. He gives 12. I'm not going to give them all. I'll give it just a few. He says the Lord is more glorified by public worship than private worship. Now, how can you say that, Mr. Clarkson? He says this, because the public acknowledgement of the worth and excellency of someone tends more to his honor than that which is private or secret. Think about it. Are people honored more by one person telling them how great they are or by a multitude telling them how great they are? That's, that's his argument, which is why the psalmist summons in Psalm 96 all the earth to praise the Lord. Because even if all the earth were to render him praise, it wouldn't be enough to acknowledge his worth because the Lord is more glorified by public worship than private worship. He also says that God manifests himself more in public worship than in private. This is why David said in Psalm 27, one thing have I asked from the Lord, that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. Because it's in the house of the Lord that we behold the beauty of the Lord. Clarkson also says there's more spiritual advantage in public worship than in private. Remember Psalm 73, where Asaph, the psalmist, the musician, is struggling. He's looking out at the prosperity of ungodly people, and he's being tempted. He's like, oh, why do I suffer like this? Why do, 
I should just go back to living the way I lived before I knew God. I mean, this isn't worth it. I mean, I suffer. They get away with everything. They're, they're always happy. They're healthy. Nobody in their families have cancer. I mean, why am I following the Lord again? And then what happens? He goes into the sanctuary of God, it says, and he discerns their end and everything changes. Public worship did that. And uh, Clarkson says, Asaph had many private helps for sure, but his temptations were not conquered until he went to church. Public worship is more edifying than private, Clark says. He says, in private, you provide for your own good, but in public, you do good both to yourselves and to other people. See, when you sing in private, who do you benefit? Yourself. When you sing God's praise in public, you benefit all of us. And this is why live coals, if separated, quickly die. But while they're together, we heat one another. This is why we come to church, brothers and sisters. And then finally, he says, public worship is a better security against falling away from God than private. And this is why that um, Psalm 8410 says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather stand at the threshold, some translations translation say, I'd better serve as a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. See, he thinks, I would rather be in church serving as an usher watching the back door like our faithful deacon Tim Hoke is right now than dwelling in the tents of wickedness because the first way that Satan often gets a hold of us is by drawing us away from the body, getting us to church less often. Ah, you'll be fine. Go two times a month. Most Christians only go once, and then he's whispering all that. Listen, we are coals that lose heat very quickly. And when this, this book of Hebrews says, you don't want to commit apostasy and fall away, do you? Then you better be in church and stay in church and stay around godly people. And that's not, that's not a threat. That's my responsibility as one of your pastors to plead for your soul. To plead with you to not make church marginal, but to make it central. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir. You're all here. But nevertheless. And then Clarkson, one more thing. Then I promise these last two points will be really quick. Public worship is the nearest resemblance of heaven. <laughs> he makes this great point. He says, in heaven, we don't worship in private cubicles. <laughs> it's a corporate gathering, right? So as scripture describes it to us, there's nothing done in private, nothing in secret. All the worship of that glorious company in heaven is public. The innumerable company of angels, the church of the firstborn, make up one general assembly in the heavenly Jerusalem. And I promise you other introverts, we're going to love that too. Even though we won't have as much me time. We're going to love being in one glorious congregation, jointly together, singing the praises of him that sits on the throne and the praises of the Lamb and continue to do that. Public worship is not the only thing we'll do, but it's certainly we will do a lot of things publicly. So that was point number eight on, uh, no, it wasn't. It's point number, yes, point number eight on sacrifices. Very quickly, verse 16 where uh, the writer gives us another sacrifice. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such pr sacrifices are pleasing to God. The point is that true Christianity and is taking care of the needs of others and it's taking care of those who cannot care for themselves. So sharing with those in need is an essential part of Christian ministry. It's one of the main ways that we do good. Now this would include... Um, 
making meals, volunteering our services, home repair, yard work, so on, are all ways that we can do good and share with one another. Even those of us who don't have a lot of money left over in our budget at the end of the month can volunteer our time and our service uh, to our brothers and sisters. Um, Most Christians well understand the principle that John Calvin said in his commentary when he wrote that doing good and sharing our sacrifices to God and we, we are with God when we do this command most faithfully. John Owen says that doing good at all times and being ready to do good means that we must follow through on our readiness and do whatever we, whenever we have opportunity. So brothers and sisters, doing good doesn't just mean we have the intention of doing good. It means we actually do good to each other. So, the, so as the Lord brings ideas to your mind of ways you can serve and as things come across your email or things you get aware of, of needs in the body, um, don't let them get lost in the sea of good intentions. Um, but make sure that we, we do those things. And it's by doing good that it's one of the main ways that, we, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, that we put ignorance to silence in the unbelieving world. It doesn't guarantee that people are going to like us, but it is the way we keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. You know, these days, the word Christian and the word church seem to evoke as many negative reactions as it does positive ones. The people of Jesus, unfortunately, and I would include myself in this, have often not represented him well. And in the eyes of a watching world, our lives can often be less compelling and more ugly than appealing, more pharisaical than winsome, more contentious than kind, more self-centered than servant-like, more sexually inappropriate than sexually pure, and more consumeristic than covenantal, and more fickle than faithful, and more greedy than generous, and more proud than humble, and more biblically disinterested than biblically anchored, and more distracted than purposeful, and more bored with Christ than alive to Christ. And non-Christians notice this kind of stuff. Critics might summarize their feelings about Christians with the words attributed to Mahatma Gandhi who said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. More recently, a San Francisco journalist said, the trouble with born-again Christians is that they're even a bigger pain the second time around. Painfully, and from the vantage point of a Christian convert who had become disenchanted with their church, Vampire Chronicles author Ann Rice wrote, for those who care, and I don't understand, I understand if you don't, Today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or to being a part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. Now, that's not right. I'm not saying that Anne Rice has a, has a warrant for saying that. As we saw last week, let brotherly love continue, right? <laughs> We have to strive and, and fight those, those temptations to want to bail. But she feels it, and it's real. And it should cause us to, you know, give some self-reflection. What would it be like for us, brothers and sisters, if we became those who lived the most attractively and loved the most deeply and served the most faithfully in the places we live, work, and play? What would... What would it look like to have that? I, I like to dream about that sometimes. I guarantee it wouldn't get you liked everywhere. <laughs> who was the most compassionate, kind man who ever lived? Jesus Christ. Never did wrong to anybody. Got killed for it. So I'm not assuming that this is always going to win everybody to Christ just because we do good and we, and we behave and we, we try to show people with kindness. But I do think, as First Peter 2 says, it can give unbelievers less ammunition. And it can cause them to glorify God 
even when they resist. This is what happened in the early church. The Roman government began to see the way the Christians were addressing some of the things that were going on in their culture by meeting needs that no one else was willing to meet, by adopting the babies that were left on the hill, by being willing to engage with people that nobody wanted to get around. And the church leaned into that, and even the unbelieving world had to take notice and say, we sure hope they don't go away. New York Times writer Nicholas Kristof, a self-proclaimed agnostic, has often noted how today's Christians far outnumber the rest of the world in volunteer hours and dollars given toward the alleviation of poverty and human suffering. It's not all bad PR out there, brothers and sisters. There's plenty in the church to commend the church. The openly gay mayor of Portland, Sam Adams, has spoken publicly about how positive his experience was partnering with local Christian churches to serve vulnerable communities in Portland, Oregon. A Nashville pastor recently said that an abortion provider who's beginning to engage with the claims and ways of Christ told a member of his church, quote, I want your God, whoever he or she is, to be my God. See, Scripture declares that Christians are sent out to emanate Christ's aroma to the world. That's an aroma of both death and life. But churches are to be cities of light and pillars of salt, dispelling darkness and preserving from decay and creating thirst. As the novelist and poet Madeline Engel wrote, We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, but by telling or by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that's so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Now there's a place to defend the faith and speak up and be honest, but we must realize that always before we get to the word, we need to have the heart and the love that leads to it. Speak the truth in the context of love. Scott Sauls, pastor in Nashville, says, What matters more to us, that we successfully put others in their place or that we're known to love well? That we win culture wars with carefully constructed arguments and political power plays or that we win hearts with humility, truth, and love? God have mercy on us if we do not love well because all that matters to us is being right and winning arguments. End quote. All right, last two. Number nine, a God-pleasing church prays for its leaders. Suddenly and kind of -of matter-of-factly in verse 18, the writer says, pray for us, pray for us. And then verse 19, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. He's asking for prayer for himself. It's a strong request. It's an urgent request. Here is a particular prayer that all your pastors and all your deacons request. (laughs) It's a prayer that those called by God to lead his church a prayer that God will assist us in doing what we do with a good conscience and a praiseworthy and honorable life. I need that. We all need that. Ken Hughes, who for many years served as the senior pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, puts it well when he says, if we desire power in our lives and in our churches, we must pray. Likewise, if we desire ours or others preaching to be more than exegesis and rhetoric, we must pray. How different the modern church would be if the majority of its people prayed for its pastors and lay leadership. There would be supernatural suspensions of business as usual worship. There'd be times of inexplicable visitations from the Holy Spirit. More lay people would come to grips with the deeper issues of life. The leadership vacuum would evaporate. There would be more conversions. One more Spurgeon quote. He admonished his congregation as he concluded his sermon on May 27, 1855, with the following words, My people, my people, shall I ever lose your prayers? 
Will you ever cease your supplications? Will you ever cease to pray? I fear you have not uttered so many prayers this morning as you should have done. I fear there's not been so much earnest devotion as might have been poured forth for my own part. I've not felt the wondrous power I sometimes experience. Francis Schaeffer said, We must pray for our leaders. In our romanticism, we tend to elevate leaders so high that they might as well be pieces of wood. (laughs) Just saying idols. They are no longer people, but symbols. We cannot stand to think of them as sinners. And this is unfair. Being a leader does not change a man's nature. We must understand our leaders to be men and pray for them. As we reflect the Bible's realism, we will not turn people into pieces of wood and then walk away from them. Rather, we must remember that all Christians are men and w- men or women, sinners having many victories, yet sinners until Jesus comes again. There is no man or woman who does not need prayer. And if a servant of God falls, then the first question I should ask is, have I shared this burden? Specifically, have I treated him as a piece of wood or a religious symbol or have I prayed for him as a person? And I'll tell you what you can pray for. Verses 20 and 21 of Hebrews 13. Pray that the Lord, the mighty shepherd of the sheep, would equip us with everything good for doing his will and work in us what's pleasing in his sight. That's what we ask you to pray for us. Tenth and finally, a God-pleasing church greets and encourages one another. A God-pleasing church greets and encourages one another. Look at what he says at the end of the letter. After saying, asking them to bear with him in this word of exhortation, he says... I've written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, giving him an update. He's out of prison now. With whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you. You know, Christians, as Christians, we always end with kindness. We always end with love. Christians should be the most convictional people I beg with you to bear with me this word of exhortation. I've had strong things to say to you, but I love you. And I want you to know that good things are happening to your brothers and sisters. And I greet you as a brother and sister in Christ. Rather than rushing to find fault in this letter, the writer proactively seeks opportunities, as Tim Keller calls it, to catch others doing good. And to encourage, literally put courage into others. We must, as writer Ann Voskamp says, only speak words that make souls stronger. As the beloved, blood-bought daughters and sons of God, we must use our words to call out the best in each other versus punishing each other for the worst. Millions of men and women and boys and girls walk around with wounds inflicted on them by wounding words spoken over them either by others or by their own hearts. Words such as this, you're worthless, you're ugly, you'll never amount to much, you disappoint me. Why can't you be more like your brother? You're too fat. You're too thin. I want a divorce. You should be ashamed of yourself. I hate you. I wish you were never born. How many of us have heard those things in our own lives? At least some. I, I guarantee some, every one of us has heard something off that list in our lives. And if you haven't, you're in the minority. However, words not only have the power to crush spirits, they also have a mighty power to lift spirits, to bring strength to the weary, to give hope to the hopeless, to put courage back into someone and to make a soul stronger. Words like this, which would be no doubt included in these kinds of greetings. You matter. You are the image of God. You are loved at your best and you are loved at your worst. You are uniquely gifted. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are God's child, the bride of Jesus, the vessel of the Holy Spirit, and an heir of the universe. 
I see potential in you. I value you. I need you. I respect you. Will you forgive me? I forgive you. I like you. I love you. Everyone is tired or worried or angry or sad or hurting. Let's be the one that lowers the volume and calms the situation, who smiles kindly, who says, I'm sorry with no sarcasm, who shows grace. Let's be the face of Jesus to each other. Brothers and sisters, this is baseline Christianity. I will stick with you. I will disagree with you and be okay. I'll be open to reason with you. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. I'll think the best of you. I'll value you over my opinion. I'll sacrifice for your good. That's discipleship 101. That's discipleship 101 in the church. May God help us to have that culture. I will stick with you, brother and sister. I will disagree with you, and I'm going to be okay. (laughs) Really? And I'll be open to reason with you, and you be open to reason with me, and I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt, always. And I'm going to think the best of you, and I'm going to value you over anything that I think, because people matter more than positions. And I will sacrifice for your good. May God help us to be a church that is pleasing to him. Let's pray together. Father, we are tremendously grateful to you for your word. Thank you for this congregation that is so faithful to bear with this word of exhortation. Thank you for the the strong medicine in your word that you give that is designed to strengthen our souls, encourage in us, put steel in our backs, and cause us to press on knowing that this life is hard, but our Savior is great. And so, Lord, we pray for these ten things to be realized in our church and in all your churches. The churches across this community of Owensboro, the churches across the state of Kentucky, the church across our great nation of America, the churches in this hemisphere, the churches around the world would be marked by the sort of things that Hebrews 13 commends to us. Only your spirit can do this. So we ask you, spirit, equip us with everything good for doing your will and work these things into us because you and you alone can do it. And so we ask for your mercy, your grace, your power, your presence, and your blessing upon all that we've thought through. And may you work in us what is pleasing in your sight for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.